0: 1. You can find that in the Red Pew Bible on page 909. 909. Well, in the opening scene of the iconic cult classic, The Princess Bride, a grandfather, yeah, none of you have seen it, have you? Um, A grandfather comes in to visit his grandson who is sick. He brings him a special book. One that his father read to him when he was sick, and one that he used to read to his son, the boy, the, his grandson's father, when he was sick. And now he tells his grandson, I'm going to read it to you. Now, as you can imagine, uh, it's clear that the grandson is rather skeptical that he's going to like this book, especially with the title, The Princess Bride. But he decides to try it, as if he has any choice in the matter, anyway. And to the delight of audiences everywhere, we are plunged with him into a story filled with giants, sword fights, wrestling matches, pirates, screeching eels, and most importantly, true love. By the end of the movie, you realize that while the movie primarily focuses on the adventures of Wesley, Princess Buttercup, and their band of merry misfit friends, as they triumph over the warmongering and corrupt Prince Humperdinck, It's really a story about the triumph of true love, a love which leaves the pages of the story and transforms the life of the grandson himself. This morning, we are starting a new book, beginning a new series in the book of Acts, or as it's traditionally called, the Acts of the Apostles. This is an exciting book filled with wonders and, and accounts of wonders, miracles, apostles and skeptics shipwrecks and riots, prophecies and fulfillments, angels and demons, empires and kingdoms. It's the sort of book that captures the imagination, that excites and affects the soul. It is a book about true love, a love which Christ has for his bride, the church. Unlike the princess bride, however, this is not a book of fiction. It is aimed at recounting facts and events which testify to the power of the greatest story ever told, the gospel, the rule of Christ, and the spread of his kingdom. Now Luke, the author of this book, goes to great lengths to show us that these were, in fact, historical events, events that have an impact for the way that you live. And he bases what he says on his own experiences and the testimony of those who witnessed these things firsthand. He does it with such painstaking detail, actually, that the archaeologist Sir William Ramsay, a man who began his career as a skeptic, but who learned in time to trust Luke's account because it was Luke's account that actually aided his own archaeological investigation and changed his mind, that he went so far as to say, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian's and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. So it stands that the book of Acts gives believers an accurate account and a compelling glimpse into our past, recording some of the wonders and the mighty works that Jesus said would happen after he had ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit had come on his people. More than that, this is a book that is meant to affect us, and to instruct us in how to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ, which is not unlike what we have been looking at as we've been making our way through the book of Joshua. Actually, I think there's an uncanny connection between the book of Joshua, especially in Joshua chapter 22 through 24, and how we were looking at how to live in the fulfillment of God's promises and what we're going to be looking at in the book of Acts. I have a number of big goals for our time in Acts, which emerge out of the book itself. First, as I've already kind of alluded to, I want you to see that the gospel of Christ that we have received is founded on historical fact. Luke meant for this account to stand up to the scrutiny of the naysayers, the skeptics, and the cynics. And time and time again, his testimony has held up. I hope that in our time in this book, your faith will be, the confidence of your faith will be enriched. Now the second big goal I have for you is I want to bring you face to face with the even richer theology of this book. When people think about the book of Acts, they typically think about a, a history book, a book of wonders. And that's not wrong. But just like we saw with the book of Joshua, it is so much more than that. This is a book that is filled with theology. It affects the way you think about God whether we're talking about the rich sermons that this book records or the overall message of the book itself. It actually might surprise you that a third of the book of Acts is actually made up of recorded sermons, which lay forth with unparalleled clarity the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and which call us to faith and obedience to him. This is as much, if not more, a book that's designed to give you good theology, good doctrine, as it is meant to equip you with an accurate understanding of how the church came to be. And the third goal that I have for us in this uh, is that as we make our way through this book, I want to see that you are all equipped with a grace-filled, purpose-driven perspective on life that can only be described as Christ-exalting, kingdom-living. There are some things recorded in this book that I think are intended to be descriptive of what God did and not necessarily prescriptive or normative for the church today. But there are also things recorded for us by Luke in the book of Acts which brilliantly express the bedrock of the Christian faith to us. And so there are many things for us to learn from the book of Acts, not just about what God has done to exalt Christ in history, but also about what he is doing and will even still do through his church, even through us. Now, before we set out on this journey, we need to set a course for where all this is going. That's what I want to do now. Uh, There is, as we will see in our passage this morning, one theme that reigns supreme over this book. You might think based on the title heading of this book that this is a book about the apostles or that it's a book about church life or that it's about the history of the, how the church came to be. And, and those things aren't wrong. But there's something that supersedes that, something bigger going on here. Luke dedicated himself to painstakingly recording these acts of the apostles and the history of the church not to bring attention to them but to bring attention to King Jesus. Jesus. This book is a book about Jesus. If the Gospel of Luke was written to account for all that Jesus accomplished and what he taught while he was on earth until the day he was taken up, then the book of Acts was written to account for all that Jesus continued to accomplish in and through his people. this is the heading that Luke sets for us in this opening passage. And it's the heading that we're meant to keep for ourselves as we make our way through what he's recorded here. So with that in mind, uh, let's begin by reading our text. So if you would please stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus... This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. Well, the book of Acts tells the story of a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so it stands, and it is the story of a king, Jesus Christ, and how he has expanded and established that kingdom through his redeemed people to the uttermost parts of the world. The primary way that God's people take part in this work is by telling others this message of Jesus' victory and calling them on the authority that Christ has given us to repent and to believe the gospel. Luke sets the stage for this purpose in these opening verses of Acts. And it is, which is clearly seen in what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 8, when he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So, King Jesus calls and equips his people to be his witnesses, which is the main point of our passage this morning. And to put that a little more directly, uh, if you have the sermon notes, you'll see that our main point this morning is simply this, that our primary role as disciples of Christ is to be witnesses of the glory of King Jesus to the world. Now that purpose explains what Luke is trying to get at as he recounts the work that Jesus has done in and through his people after his triumph over sin and death on the cross, in his resurrection, and after his ascension to the right hand of the Father. As we read the book of Acts, in order to keep it in a right perspective, we have to read it through this lens of the kingdom of God. Uh, To make that point, Luke actually spends the first 11 verses of this this book focused like a laser on Jesus, and specifically what he said and what he did for his disciples to prepare them for this kingdom work and for what he was about to accomplish in and through them. So as we look at this passage, I think we can identify four things that Jesus did for the church, which he continues to do to prepare us and to equip us for kingdom work. So, Four things which Jesus does to prepare us to be faithful witnesses to the world around us. That's that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, our four points. (coughs) First, we're going to see that Jesus teaches his church. Jesus teaches his church. Second, we're going to see that Jesus equips his church. He equips his church. Third, we will see that Jesus focuses his church. He focuses his church. And finally, we see that Jesus assures his church that he is coming back. Let's begin by looking at what Jesus taught his church. Now, Luke is the only gospel writer who directly addresses his work to a person. In Luke 1, uh, verses 1 through 4, He explained that inasmuch as many had undertaken to compile a narrative or a story of what Jesus had accomplished, it seemed good to him to write an orderly account of those things so that his reader, someone he refers to as Theophilus, might have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. The book of Acts is intended to accomplish a similar purpose. It's sort of volume two of the works of Christ, meant to transition us from the work that Jesus did while he was on earth to the work he is now doing in and through the church. Now, we don't really know who this Theophilus is. Uh, Theophilus's name is quite interesting. It actually means friend of God or beloved by God. And so it's been suggested by some, uh, like the church father Origen, that Luke is using this as a broad term to address the church at large. But judging from Luke's grammar and his stated purpose, it seems more likely that Luke is actually thinking of someone very particular uh, sometime around uh, the year 62 AD, so about 30 years after Jesus had first begun his ministry. And we know that Luke intended Acts to be a companion to the gospel, uh, which he had already written because of the way he connects the two books together in verse 1. He actually mentions it. He says, in the first book O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, that's quite an introduction. And it it not only seamlessly ties Luke's two books together, but it also gives us a little more detailed view into what Jesus did after he rose from the dead, before he ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father. We see that Jesus' ministry (laughs) didn't end with his death and his resurrection. Luke tells us that Jesus continued on equipping his disciples, preparing them to be his witnesses in the world about all that they had seen and heard. Verse 3 in particular tells us that Jesus presented himself alive to the apostles and to others after he had suffered, not once, not twice, but many times, appearing to them with many proofs during the course of the 40 days after he had risen from the dead. Now Luke's goal in all of this is to give us certain confidence that the stupendous claims of the gospel concerning who Jesus is <coughs> excuse me and all that he has accomplished are indeed true. He wants you to know this isn't a myth, this isn't a legend, this is fact. He's providing an answer to the skeptics that the Christian faith is not built on ideas or well wishes, but on real objective facts about God and about his work of redemption. The claims of the gospel are backed up with evidence, evidence of the testimony of these witnesses whose lives were changed by what they saw who, who being of sound mind, testified of what they had seen and heard and experienced, who were willing and even glad to give their lives for this message and for the king whom they dearly loved. These people were as trustworthy witnesses as you could ask for, not only because of what they experienced in the appearance of Christ to them as he presented himself to them, but also because we see that they were actually authorized by Jesus himself to be witnesses of these things. Notice how in verse 2, Luke tells us how Jesus instructed the apostles whom he had chosen He says that these men had a unique authority, not only because they had seen firsthand the risen Christ, but because they were called by him and equipped uniquely for this task to be apostles, which is a notable qualification, something that the self-proclaimed apostles of our day lack, which is why we as a church do not recognize the authority they claim to have. Now, you probably don't run into a lot of people saying, I'm an apostle. Uh, in your everyday running arounds, but you need to know that is a major issue in the church, especially in Africa and Asia. There are people who try to get that authority for themselves. You need to see that there's a unique qualification, even in the opening verses of the book of Acts. And we look at, at what Luke records about Jesus after the resurrection. We can clearly see that he was preparing his followers for what will lie ahead, especially his chosen apostles, specifically to be his witnesses. And that he did this first and foremost through what he taught them. This is Jesus at work teaching his people. Now this is nothing out of the ordinary for what we saw Jesus do in his ministry before he went to the cross. For three years, Jesus was teaching his disciples, investing in them with what he taught. What's different about what he's doing uh, here, though, is that he's teaching them as the crucified and resurrected Lord prior to this, the disciples had a different idea of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. They were looking for a king who was going to set them free from their oppression under Rome, who would then elevate the Davidic throne back to the place that it once was. They were looking for Jesus to instill a new superpower on earth. And judging from what they actually asked Jesus in verse 6, it seems that they were actually still looking for Jesus to do something like that. But the kingdom of God Is bigger than that. And in the time that Jesus spent with his disciples on earth before his ascent into heaven, we say that he was dedicating himself to teaching the disciples and opening their eyes to the bigger picture of redemption and the kingdom of God. Luke doesn't give us a ton of detail here about exactly what Jesus said to his disciples then, but uh, we do get a little bit of a snapshot into what that looked like at the ending of his gospel, uh, where he tells us in detail how Jesus appeared to two of those disciples on the road as they were walking to the town called Emmaus. Uh, Luke tells us how Jesus met them on the road and explained to them as they were walking all the scriptures concerning his suffering and glory. Later, after these two men returned and reported what had happened uh, to them on the road to the rest of the disciples, Luke tells us that Jesus appeared to them all and how he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and the gospel of grace. So Jesus was making sure the disciples not only had a right account of what they had seen, but that they understood the significance of it and how it had, what, how it related to the kingdom of God. Now, why is it that Luke would go to such effort to recount to this man Theophilus and to us about how Jesus spent this time with his disciples, teaching them and speaking to them about the kingdom of God? Well, I think there are, there are a few reasons. Uh, first, we know that Luke wants his readers to have confidence that the gospel and all that it says concerning Jesus is, in fact, true. The truth claims of the Christian faith aren't just a bunch of clever ideas that were thought up in someone's basement. The gospel is authoritative. It has authority because it's God's gospel. And it stands up to scrutiny because it is true. As we saw in Paul's own account in the book of Galatians about how he became an apostle and the authority of the message that he had preached, Jesus' apostles didn't believe or preach the gospel that they proclaimed as a doctrine of man, as if someone had just come along and convinced them of adopting a certain worldview. They proclaimed it because they received it from Jesus himself. If the gospel was something that the apostles simply Put together uh, as a way of explaining Jesus' death and everything that in, was involved, then it truly would be a man-made religion. The fact that Luke, uh, the fact is that as Luke accounts for us, the gospel, which the apostles were willing to give their lives up for, was a message that Jesus himself shows uh, and which he authorizes, which is a message like any, uh, like, unlike any other. The gospel is not the, uh, a collection of the musings of some wise people or the wishes of some religious leaders. It's the message, the proclamation of salvation, which has been issued by King Jesus himself. We are simply the messengers. Now the second reason that I think Luke goes into such detail about this is that he wants us to view uh, how we think about our lives in Christ through a kingdom lens. And what I mean by that is that Luke wants us to read this book and to think about our own lives as we follow Christ uh, through the perspective of what Jesus has done to establish his kingdom here on earth. When we were making our way through the gospel of Mark, we saw that Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand and was even there. uh, We saw how all the mighty works of Jesus, which were recorded for us by Mark, showed Jesus systematically proving that he was in fact greater. Greater than sickness, greater than demons, greater than Satan, greater than the elements, greater than rulers, greater than emperors, and so on. Luke does the same thing in his gospel. And now, again, in the opening of Acts, we see the theme of the kingdom of God. Meaning that while the gospels emphasize the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the book of Acts emphasizes the way that God has expanded that kingdom to every corner of the world. Now, the term kingdom of God actually only appears six times in this book, but when it does appear, it appears at very strategic times, like what we see here in verse 3. And that convinces me that this is a book that is meant to instruct believers like Theophilus, like you and me, in how to live as citizens of the kingdom of Christ. This is a book on kingdom living as an ambassador of Christ to a lost and dying world. And the point that I want you to take from that is simply this, that there is no kingdom power without kingdom truth. All the mighty works that we're going to see in this book are aimed at showing the authenticity of the message of the gospel and the power of King Jesus as he rules and reigns. Before Jesus sent his disciples out, he gave them the message they were to speak. He equipped them with the knowledge of the truth. And when we think about how he has called us to be his witnesses, we must be impressed that that is our first duty, first and foremost to speak the truth of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, we see, we've seen through in verses 1 through 3 how Jesus taught the church. Second, we see The second way we see Jesus preparing his people to be his witnesses uh, is by equipping them with power, which is what we're looking at here in verses 4 through 5. Notice in verses 4 through 5, Jesus, while he was staying with the disciples, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. That's interesting because most of these guys are specifically from Galilee. Instead, he tells him to stay in Jerusalem and to wait on the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. So there is Jesus teaching. There's Jesus' word. And he's saying, Now I want you to do something based on that. Stay in the city. For as John baptized with water, you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So wait as I equip you. And there's a lot to this baptism that Jesus speaks of. And we're going to go into that. Uh, a little bit deeper when we get into Acts chapter 2, which records how all of this happened on the day of Pentecost. For now, I simply want to point out to you the relationship between the authority of Jesus' word and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is meant to equip God's people for the task of being faithful witnesses. Even though Jesus had taught his disciples about the kingdom of God, he did not send them out into the world to be witnesses without equipping them also with kingdom Power. The arrival of the Holy Spirit was essential for the work that Jesus had set apart for his people to do. Gospel ministry is not about just finding a way to convince people that it's true. It takes a work of God to raise dead hearts so that they can receive this gospel. The coming of the Holy Spirit was part of what God had promised to do in His Word. It's actually part of the promise that God had made, not only that He would cleanse His people of their sins, but that He would actually give them a new heart, and that He would put His Spirit within them. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in spectacular fashion, On Jesus' disciples. We'll get into the details of that day. But we see that he came for a purpose, and that purpose was to equip them to speak the word of the gospel to the nations who had gathered at Jerusalem so that people everywhere would see and know that God had kept his word and that Jesus was indeed the Christ. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus speaks to the disciples about what's coming, ordering them to stay in Jerusalem until they had received this promise. In doing so, we see that Jesus does not merely call his people to know truth and to speak truth, but that he actually equips us for this task, to speak that truth in the power of the Spirit, the same Spirit who dwells in every believer, so that in everything we do as the people of God, the glory goes to him. I love, as we read this, how we get a glimpse of the triune priority of the gospel here. Notice that you have all three of the persons spoken of here. Now, Luke exalts Jesus as the focal point of action and divine rule in this passage, but he also gives us a glimpse into the economy of the Trinity, saying that all this is being accomplished according to the will of God the Father, to the glory of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Three distinct and eternal persons, each with one nature. You know, this is a facet of the mystery of the gospel that because of the, how complicated the doctrine of the Trinity gets, I think it gets missed a lot. And so I think, if you will just begrudge my inner theology nerd for a second, I think it's worthy of your contemplation. Jesus has done more than just to pay for sin a slave may be forgiven of the debt that they owe their master and remain a slave still. Jesus has done more than that. He's made us sons of God with him so that we don't just relate to God as as like a slave driver or as a master only, but as a loving father. And before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus told the crowds, the light, speaking of himself, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. Paul explains in Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Here's what I want you to see from this. Because of the grace of God, we have received the riches of sonship at Christ's expense. And the gospel as it is poured out on us is not just the mercy of one of the persons of the Trinity, but a triune unified action. So that this is the love of the Father poured out on you through the work of the Son empowered by the Holy Spirit who is in now at work in you bringing you in in a mysterious way into this relationship so that we're not just God's creatures but he sees us as his own sons. And that includes all of you ladies too. That is the relationship that Christ has accomplished. We when we were born again, we entered into a relationship with the triune God through Jesus so that we may live like Him and become like Him and be equipped not just with the right knowledge, not just with the right head knowledge of God, but actually with the right heart knowledge of who God is and with a power of God at work in us to accomplish the work that He has set forth for us to do. There is no power of Satan that can resist what God has set forth for you to do. He cannot undo it. And the reason you can obey the truth without fear is because God has seen fit to equip you to do so. So in this task of being an ambassador for Christ, believers have strength because Christ not only teaches us, but he equips us. The third thing that we see Jesus doing in this passage is that he focuses the church. He focuses the church. I have a set of binoculars that I use when I shoot in archery competitions. My, my favorite thing to do is to shoot uh, 3D archery where you shoot at these foam animals and they, they have scoring rings on them that you can't see unless you're really close. So you have to have a set of binoculars so you know where to aim. Now, in the middle of these, these binoculars, they, there's a little dial that I actually turn with my finger as I'm looking at the target to bring things into focus because all these targets are at different distances. Now, that's an essential tool because if my binoculars aren't in focus, I, can, I can't can see the details that I need to be able to see in order to hit my target, to, in order to make a good shot. Now, I might be able, the, the crazy thing about focusing is I might be able, if the focus is off, I might be able to see like a ladybug crawling on a leaf halfway between me and the target. But unless I adjust the focus, I won't actually be able to see the scoring rings on the target itself. Now, despite all the time that Jesus' disciples spent with him listening to what he had to say to them about the kingdom of God, we see in verse 6 that they're, they're still a little bit out of focus. They need to be adjusted a little bit. Luke tells us that when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, they're licking their chops. They're ready to go. They're still thinking of Jesus, it seems, in terms of a human kingdom kingdom perspective. And they want to know, is this going to be the time when you overthrow the Roman Empire and you set up David's throne, as we've all expected you to do? Now, Jesus... Uh, Jesus actually doesn't give them the satisfaction of a yes or no answer. Instead, he just he adjusts their perspective a little bit. He turns the dial. He focuses them in on the task at hand, bringing their target into focus. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, he tells them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what's Jesus' answer when the disciples ask, is this it? Is this the moment when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Well, he tells them it's not yours to know those things. The times and the seasons, events yet to come, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, those are God's alone. You stay focused. Titus does not have to know everything that I have planned for him, when we get in the truck to go somewhere and and it it seems that uh even when i do tell him where we're going it's like he doesn't he has a hard time with it anyway where are we going oh we're going to the store how we do that well we're in the truck we're going that's how okay it it it, it he simply all i need him to do in that moment is to trust me and to listen to me and to focus on the task at hand. Because until he's in that bucket seat, we can't move. Now, I'm under no obligation in those circumstances to tell him any or all of the details that we're gonna be, that I'm, about what we're going to do. Actually, sometimes uh, when we're going somewhere that's new and exciting, he doesn't even have a category for what I'm going to So if I tell him, it, he's not going to even have an idea what that means. God is not obligated to share any of the details that he has in store for the future for us. In fact, Jesus had already told his disciples in Matthew twenty four thirty six that concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, as we look at this, I don't want you to get angry at the disciples or look down on them. I, I don't think any of us could fault the disciples for asking this question. But this question does show, I think, how out of focus the disciples were. There was so much kingdom work to be done. And so we see in verse 8 that Jesus turns back that focus on them a little bit to focus on the task at hand. Don't worry about what the Father has planned for the times and the seasons of all things. That is his prerogative. He is good and he is in control. Stay focused on the task that I have given you. I have taught you. I am equipping you. You are to be my witnesses here and abroad. That is your task. That is your purpose. Stay on that and leave the rest to me. You know, after, after 2020, we were all hoping that 2021 would be a better year. And I think within the first three months, we all knew this is not going the way we thought. <laughs> a lot of us were disappointed. Creation groans each day. and I think we're, some of us are more aware of that today than we were yesterday. The creation groans with deep cries, even deeper cries, for the unveiling of the sons of God and the final destruction of Satan and his kingdom. It's a longing that has caused oceans of ink to be spilled, laying out charts, speculating what all this might happen. But Jesus has given us a clear target a role, a purpose, a task, and a calling here and now. And that task is to be witnesses of the gospel, both at home and abroad. He knows our cares. He knows our reservations. He knows when things look impossible from our perspective. He knows our complaints. And what he wants us to know is that all those things are taken care of by a father who has fixed the times and the seasons all by his own authority for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. Following Jesus doesn't mean that we know everything that He is doing, but what it does mean is embracing his priorities, committing to do the work he has set in front of us, staying focused on what he has called us to do, and trusting him to work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now the fourth thing that we see that Jesus does to prepare his church to be his witnesses is we see that he assures us that he is coming back for his church. Verses 9 through 11, Luke recalls for us how Jesus, after he had said all these things to his disciples, as they were looking on, was lifted up and that a cloud took him out of their sight. It was an amazing moment. There is, there is some symbolism behind that, that this only God travels this way. I can't go into that this was an amazing moment that held the gaze and the attention of the, apostles, of the disciples and it held their gaze for so long that they, we are told that two men apparently angels stood by them finally in white robes and said men of Galilee why do you stand looking into heaven after all we know Jesus had clearly told the disciples what to do go back to Jerusalem stay there Wait to receive the Holy Spirit as I told you I would send, and then go into all the world and be my witnesses. Clear instructions. What's God's will for my life? Here it is. And still, we have the disciples staring up like they're watching some sort of rocket flying up, and they can't see it anymore. I don't think we should fault the disciples too much here. Again, I I can't imagine the glory of what they had just seen. And I expect that if we were with them we would have been gawking at heaven right alongside them. It was an awesome moment. But now there's work to be done. And this question from these two men, these two angels, snaps us back into reality, as if to say, guys, what are you doing? Get focused. You've been given marching orders. Listen to your Lord. But it's the second part of what these men have to say to the disciples that I want to focus on and end with this morning. They have a message a reminder for the disciples. This Jesus, whom you have just seen taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as when you saw him go. Of all that Jesus spoke to his disciples about, how the scriptures had spoken of him, how he had ushered in the kingdom of God, how he was sending his Holy Spirit to be with them and dwell in them and to equip them for the task he had set them to do, to be his witnesses, I think it's this promise, this promise of his return, that really brings hope home to our hearts and which actually equips us in the end to be witnesses without fear to a world that is lost in darkness. One day, Christ assures us, our faith will be sight, our hope will be fulfilled, and the dark glass through which we now peer through will be replaced with brilliant clarity. The disciples had Jesus' word. They had his promise of the Holy Spirit. They had a clear focus and a clear direction about what they were to do. But it was the hope of their Lord's return that actually mobilized them into action. The reality of Jesus' return does two things for us. First, it assures us that there is a day when our work will be done and our strivings will cease and we will enjoy Christ in his splendor face to face. It gives us something to to go through the muck and the mire of this world with joy and hope in our hearts because we know something better is coming. The second thing it does, though, is that it causes us to see the urgency of this task we've been given since salvation is only assured to the one who puts their hope in Jesus Christ. One day the need for evangelism will be at an end. Because every eye will see him, every heart will be laid bare, every life will be examined, and judgment will be handed out according to the righteousness of a holy God. As long as there is life in our lungs, we have a task to do. Be imitators of God, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. If you're a follower of Christ, then know that you have been chosen to be a witness for him. We may not know what the next year holds for us, for, for our families, for our nation, for our, for our church, but we do know that we have a clear task and purpose for how we've been called to live. It's a task and purpose that is bigger than any one of us, but because King Jesus reigns, it is a task that we can trust he will accomplish through us. Now, this morning we've seen how, God, how Jesus calls us to this task. We've seen how he equips us for that task, and we may not know what 2022 holds for us, but that's an unknown that we can enter boldly into because we know the King who reigns over it and we can face it with all boldness and confidence because of the promise that we have in this, this Jesus who has come, who has died, who has rose, who reigns now and as, as he has promised, he is coming back to make all things new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you that you did not just uh, come as a man, but that you also died on the cross, and that you uh, rose again from the grave, and that you have now ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we thank you, Father, for the way that you have purposed all these things for Jesus' glory, uh, which redound down to your praise. <clears throat> and we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and who is at work through us and in every believer and who is at work even now testifying to the reality of the gospel. We pray, O oh God, that you would, uh, by your grace, use Grace Baptist Church here to be a light to the nations, to be a light to our community, So that as people hear the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, that you would raise dead hearts and that people would come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord so that he might be exalted. Father, over the the course of the next few months, as we go through the book of Acts, I pray that you would inspire us, that you would direct us, that you would uh, show us uh, and encourage us in how we are to go about this task. And I pray, Father, that as we deal with it, we would be an obedient people and walk like beloved the beloved children that we are in Christ. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.